I hope you've got your Bible with you and are eager to take that in study with us. We've been talking on Sunday evenings, though it has been interrupted by my being out of the pulpit for a couple of times. But we've been talking on Sunday evenings about things having to do with eternity. Is there life beyond the grave? We've talked about the judgment. We've talked about um, various aspects of life beyond the grave, the second coming. Tonight I don't want to continue that study, and we'll continue with, with at least one more beyond this, maybe more than that. But I want to talk about heaven tonight. And next Lord's Day evening we'll talk about hell, what the Bible says about hell. We've been talking about the Hadean realm, but I want to talk about beyond the day of judgment and beyond the Hadean realm and talk about the eternal abode of both the righteous tonight and then the wicked in our next study. Now, what do we hope to accomplish in our study on heaven? I hope we can see that how great and how wonderful heaven is. You already know that, but I want us to have some reminders before us in that we're talking about eternity and things beyond this life, just how great and how wonderful heaven is and make it real in our minds that heaven is not just something we think about or talk about, but there is reality when it comes to heaven. And hopefully that stirs a greater desire to go. Uh, your presence this evening suggests that you have a desire to go to heaven, but hopefully when we get through, there's a greater desire that I'm ready to go and I want to go to heaven when this life indeed is over. Now let's list some things that I know about heaven. There's a great deal I don't know about eternity. There's a great deal that I may not know about heaven and I may not know about hell. I may not know about the Hadean realm, but here's some things I do know about heaven. It is a real place. You can ask me a lot of questions about it, and I'm going to say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But I know it's a real place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And so he's gone, and he's leaving, and he's going somewhere else than earth to prepare a place, he said. So it's a real place. Secondly, I know this. I know that when we're there, we'll be like Christ. Now, there's more about that I don't know, but I know we'll be like him. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John, if you will. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 and notice in verses 1 and 2, verse 2 said, Beloved, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so what do I know about heaven? I know that when I'm there, I'll be like Christ. Some aspect in which I'll be like him. The details of that I may not fully understand. Here's something else I know about heaven. I know that our bodies will be changed. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in arguing for the resurrection, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Our mortal bodies shall be changed to that which is immortal. And so I know this much. I know that our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, but they're going to be changed. And so what is now mortal is going to be immortal. So there's going to be a change somehow. You want to know the details of all of that? I may not understand and I may not know. But I know that much. Here's something else I know. I know that we'll be conscious. I recognize Luke 16 is not talking about the eternal abode, but it does illustrate that beyond the grave, man is conscious. And so we're very conscious while we're in heaven. We'll also be very conscious while we're in hell. And we're very conscious while, and know what's going on while we're in that Hadean realm in that intermediate state. Now let's begin listing some things about heaven. Let's start with some types and analogies of heaven. And what we mean by that is there are a number of things found in the scriptures that heaven is compared to. Because just to mention heaven doesn't tell us much about that. 
Just a reference that one dies and if they live right, they go to heaven doesn't tell me anything unless I have something to compare it to. Since I haven't seen eternity, I haven't been to eternity, it must be compared with something that I may know something about. So let's begin listing some of those. First of all, it's compared to the Garden of Eden. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. It's made a comparison. It's likened to the Garden of Eden. Now, I won't read every verse that we're going to list, not only here, but all throughout the scriptures. But in verse 1, in picturing eternity, life beyond, he, he showed me a, a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. And in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, you read that and you're reminded, to say the least, of something about the Garden of Eden. But let's go now to chapter 2 of the same book. We've already been through the book of Revelation chapter 2, and notice in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now that reminds you of the Garden of Eden. So in that comparison, I think of a place of heaven. It's a place of sinlessness and holiness as the Garden of Eden was prior to the fall. I think of a place of beauty and of splendor, unlike anything that we could imagine. I think of a place that would be called the paradise of God, and I also am reminded that what was lost in the sin that was introduced in the Garden of Eden will be ultimately gained in heaven itself. And so there is a comparison. That's part of the type and analogy of heaven. All provisions are supplied there. But here's something else. Let's go to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Heaven is compared to being like under the Canaan land or the promised land. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And that's Hebrews 3 and 4, not verse 4, but chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so this, the whole two chapters deal with this concept. I want you to notice with me, beginning at verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here's a quotation from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the days of the trial in the wilderness. So here's the point being made. That in living the Christian life, don't be like those who fell in the wilderness. And so his comparison is, we're likened to those who came out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, making their way toward the promised land. Well, let's skim down just a little bit further in the context. And again in verse 15, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in that day of rebellion. Now notice in verse 16, for who having heard rebelled was indeed not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now notice at verse 19, so we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Then he continues the same thought in chapter 4. Now here's the point I want you to see. There is a parallel drawn between what happened to the children of Israel and what happens with us. The children of Israel came out of Egypt. That was their bondage. They entered into the wilderness, that is, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, making their way toward their promised land, their Canaan land, their land of rest. So the parallel is drawn in chapters 3 and chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews that we've come out of our bondage like into their bondage, the bondage of sin. We're now living the, as pilgrims, wandering in our wilderness, making it toward our promised land, that is heaven itself. So heaven is pictured like unto their rest. Heaven is pictured under their, like unto their, our promised land. It is our land of Canaan. It is our land of hope, our land of freedom from our wilderness wanderings. Now back to this concept. It is our promised land. It is our land of rest. 
It is our land that flows with milk and honey. It is our land of blessing. It is our dream, our anticipation. You imagine wandering through the wilderness and your dream and your anticipation is to make it to the promised land that God indeed has given us. We're hoping to make it to our promised land. It is our inheritance. It was their inheritance. So Canaan is our inheritance. Not the literal Canaan, but that is heaven itself. Now let's go back to this parallel for a moment. Here's the warning of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Concerning those that were in wandering in the wilderness, that was a temporary circumstance, hoping to make it to more permanent circumstance of their promised land. The same thing is true with us. We're now wandering in our wilderness, and this is temporary. We're hoping to make it to our promised land. But furthermore, the real warning of chapters 3 and 4 is they fell before they ever made it to the promised land. The same thing could happen to us. So you're now in your wandering in the wilderness. Don't fall before you ever make it to the promised land. Heaven is like unto the land of Canaan. But here's another type or analogy. It's compared to the holy of holies. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, chapter 9 and in verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Well, this chapter, this verse, in fact, tells us that the tabernacle or the temple of God, that is, you had the holy place and then you had the most holy place. The most holy place is where the, the high priest entered, making the sacrifice once a year for the sins of the people. So the parallel is given in verse 24 in our context that Christ has entered in the holy place, not the one made with hands. It's only the type or the shadow or an analogy of the greater to come. That is, he entered into heaven itself. So this most holy place is parallel to heaven itself. It is where our high priest has entered to make the sacrifice for us. There's something else that it's compared to. It is compared to Jerusalem. Here's a type or an analogy of heaven itself. Let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 21 and notice in verse 2. John said that I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. Now he's not talking about a literal city that he saw, but he saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now look at verse 10 of the same context. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so in a vision, he sees the, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. It's compared to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the greatest city of all. It was the Zion. It was the city of beauty and of wealth and of glory. Every Jew longed to be in the city of God. This is the city of God. And so it's compared to Jerusalem itself. But there's another thing. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4, if you will. It is compared to the Sabbath rest. There's a number of rests, and time would not permit us to go in detail of the rest that are mentioned. There is God resting on the seventh day. There is the Sabbath rest. There is the resting in the land of Canaan and our resting in the, the land of Canaan itself that is in our Canaan land that is heaven itself. There's a number of rests mentioned in Hebrews chapters 3 and chapter 4. But I want you to notice in Hebrews 4 and in verse 4, speaking of this Sabbath rest, he said, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There is a parallel in that and in our attaining rest. Notice now beginning at verse 9, there remains a rest for the people of God. Our rest that is in heaven is compared to the Sabbath rest where God rested on the seventh day. 
Now, what do I learn? Well, one of the basic things that I learned from that is God worked and he labored and then he rested. So if I'm going to rest in the land of Canaan, if I'm going to rest in my Sabbath, that is in heaven itself, I must first learn to work and to labor. I don't receive that without laboring. I work and labor that I might enter into that rest. But here's something else. Let's go to chapter two now. Heaven is compared to being a crown. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. And so a crown is thought to be a prize. It is a reward to given to one who may conquer and win and gain victory. And so as you conquer over sin, you conquer over Satan, you overcome yourself, you win and you are victorious, you receive the crown. That's not a literal crown, but it's the idea that when you go to heaven, it's like being crowned as the victor and the one who indeed has conquered. But it is something else it's compared to. Another type or analogy of heaven is it's compared to a mansion. Let's go to John chapter 14, if you will. John chapter 14 and in verse 1. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2 now. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place, and he compares it to that of, the, of a mansion. We see the same idea without turning there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, if you've ever been to a mansion, maybe like the Biltmore, and you think of a mansion, what do you think about? I think of a place of beauty. I think of a place that indeed is of wealth where no expense is spared. I think of a place where that is spacious, where there's plenty of room. That's what you think of when you think of a mansion. It's compared to a mansion, but there's another analogy. It's compared to a place of security. Now, Revelation chapter 21, let's go back there. We've already been there once. So let's go to Revelation chapter 21 and notice verse 12 that there is mentioned an idea of security, that there is a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Establishes the fact it's a place of security. So it's a place of protection. It's a place of safety. A place where there are no fears and no worries. All of those are past and all of those are gone. There's no temptation. There's no sin. Nothing that's going to damage or hinder our soul. Indeed, it's a place of security. All enemies are gone. They're all outside. And they all have been locked out. And no longer are they a part of that. So here's the list of the types and analogies. It's compared to, to Eden, the land of Canaan, the Holy of Holies, Jerusalem itself, the Sabbath rest, a crown, a mansion, and a place of security. Well, let's secondly talk about some descriptions of heaven's glory. What are some descriptions of how glorious heaven is? Or some things that may describe and begin to give us a glimpse, not only is it compared to something, but what are some descriptions that may give us an idea how wonderful and how glorious heaven is itself? We can only begin to imagine. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21 and notice it, verse 4. Revelation 21 in verse 4, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And for there is no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Heaven is pictured as a place where there is no pain and there is no sorrow and there is no crying. You can imagine all the pain that one goes through in this life with sickness and death and disease, losing a loved one, various problems that cause pain and sorrow, disappointment that we have in ourselves and in others. All of those former things are passed away. Imagine living in a place where you never have any pain anymore. You never have any more sorrow. You never shed another tear. Here's something else about the description of how great it is. It's described as a great city. Look at verse 10. And he carried me in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me a great city, he said. 
Can you imagine living in a city that is a heavenly city? Hebrews 11 in verse 16. It's not an earthly city. You think of living in a city that's the ideal city. If you could be given whatever you wanted as far as money to live wherever you wanted, what city would you pick on earth as the best city to live in? Well, if you could pick any city, I think I'd want to pick a city that's more heavenly than earthly, wouldn't you? Here's another description of the kind of city. It's a continuing city. For here uh, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. The cities around in this life are cities that are going to fall and they'll collapse and be gone. If not before, by the end of time, all the earth and all things therein will be burned up. But this is a continuing city. It'll never end. Once you get there, it's never going to change. Have you ever thought about cities that were great and they deteriorate over time? This one's not going to deteriorate. There's something else about this city. It's a righteous city, a city wherein dwelleth righteousness. I know cities, most of these cities, in fact, all cities, there's some wickedness there. I like to think we live in a good city here in Shelbyville. But I want to tell you there's some wickedness in this city. It's not all full of righteousness, but that city is a place where there's nothing but righteousness. How would you like every one of your neighbors to be righteous people? And how would you like every one of them to do righteous deeds? And even those that are righteous, they never sin. They never do anything wrong. That's this city. It's a heavenly city, a continuing city, a righteous city. It's a spacious city. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you that you, something you already know. And that is that this is highly symbolic language. This is not to be taken literal. But beginning at verse 10, he carried me to this great high mountain and he saw, saw, showed me this great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now dropping down, I want you to notice with me at about verse 16, in the city laid out square in its length was as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. And its length and breadth and height were equal. And he measured the wall, 142 cubics. Well, that's not to be taken literal. What it's saying is it's a spacious city. It's not a cramped city. It's a spacious city. Like that mansion we mentioned a moment ago. It's a city whose glory is unequal. Notice at verse 18, the construction of the walls were of jasper and the city was gold like, like clear glass. And the foundation of the walls were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The foundation was of jasper and the second was of sapphire and the third a chalcedony and the fourth an emerald and on down the line. Look at verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls and each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Indeed, it's pictured like a great city that tells us how great it is. And furthermore, it's a city where there is no night. Look at chapter 21, if, if you will, and look at verse 23. And the nations, or rather verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it and the Lamb is its light. Look at verse 25. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day, for there is no night there. Look at chapter 22 and in verse 5. There shall be no night there, no need for a lamp or the light of the sun, for the God gives the light to them, and they shall reign forever and forever. It's a city where there is no night. What a glorious city, but that's not all. It's a life that has no end. Let's look at Matthew chapter 25 and in verse 46. Here is a judgment scene. We've been talking about judgment in several of our studies. And look at verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now we won't turn to Revelation 22, 5. We just read that just a minute ago. The last fact, the verse just before that one we read, that they shall reign forever and forever. In other words, it's a life that has no end. It doesn't come to an end. That's part of the glory and the beauty and the splendor of heaven. It's something far better than this life. 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Heaven is pictured in verse 34 of chapter 10. He said, for you had compassion for me in my chains, joyfully accepting the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. However great you have it here, whatever possessions you have here, you have something far greater and far better in heaven. That's far better than anything you can imagine. What descriptions are given of heaven that tell me of its splendor and its glory and how great it is. There's no pain, there's no sorrow, it's a great city. It's a life that has no end. It's something far better than this life has to offer. No wonder the text describes it in the summary of saying it has the glory of God. Look at that in Revelation 21 in verse 11. This is that city, that great city of verse 10, having the glory of God. Can you imagine a city that has the glory of God that tells me something of its splendor? But let's raise another question about heaven. I know some types and analogies, what it's compared to. I know some descriptions of how glorious and how wonderful it is. But what are we going to be doing in heaven? You say, when we get there, I know what we're supposed to be doing now and getting ready to go to heaven, but what are we going to do when we get to heaven? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be singing and we're going to be praising God. Revelation chapter 5 ought to be very familiar to us because we just studied chapter 6 this morning. Last week we studied from Revelation chapter 5, part of that throne scene. God is on his throne in control, chapter 4, and here is God on his throne and the worthy lamb comes and takes the scroll. And he's praised. So I want you to notice now verses 8 and 9, that when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders talked in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, the 24 elders seemingly describe, is, is descriptive of all the redeemed of both Old and New Testament. The 12 tribes and 12 apostles making 24. So the redeemed of all ages, that includes us. So the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. What they say in the song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so here's a picture, and I recognize that's a vision, but it's a picture of the, of the praising of God, of the praise that's going on in the singing of praises to God in heaven. Let's go to the 14th division of the book of Revelation. Same book, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 14. Here was the lamb and the 144,000. We'll talk about who the 144,000 are in our Bible study next time as we go into chapter 7. We're introduced to them a little bit in chapter 7. But he said, and I looked in verse, look at verse 2, and I heard the voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of the harpist harping with their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne. For the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. What's going to be going on in heaven? We're going to be singing and praising God. If, if someone doesn't like singing and praising God, they don't like worship, they're not going to like being in heaven because... That's exactly what goes on while we're in heaven. Let's talk about another aspect of heaven now. I want us to see that heaven is a compelling force. What do we mean by that? When I understand what heaven is, what God is offering to us who are obedient, it's a compelling force forcing us and compelling us to do things before God. Look at 1 John 3 and in verse 3. And everyone that hath this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, what's interesting to me about that text, and you've heard me say this many times, there are a number of passages that say if you live right and you live godly, you have the hope of eternal life. 
That's not what this text is saying. This text comes from the other direction. If you have the hope of eternal life, that drives you to live godly. Read the passage again. See if it's not coming from the standpoint, since you have hope, that drives you to live holy and godly. Everyone that hath this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have hope? In order to drive you to be pure. It's a motivating and compelling force to cause us to obey the gospel because heaven is offered. Because there is the hope of eternal life, that ought to compel us. I want to be obedient to the gospel. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you don't want to do that. Because without obeying the gospel, you can't go to heaven. Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I go, you cannot come. John 8 verse 21. And so that means I want to obey the gospel. If I haven't yet become a Christian, I want to be a Christian. I want to be obedient to the gospel. I want to repent of my sins and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Why? Because heaven is a compelling force. But that's not all. It also compels me to worship God. You say, why do I want to worship God? Because of heaven. I want to worship God. Because I must worship God in order to go to heaven. I want to live faithful because of heaven. I want to continue to live faithful. I want to preach and teach the gospel. And you want to teach your friends and neighbors and share the gospel with them because you want them to go to heaven. It's a compelling force. And furthermore, to correct and rebuke those who are in sin. So I don't want to hurt their feelings. Do you want them to go to heaven? You say, I've got family that needs correcting. Well, yeah. Do you want them to go to heaven? Well, then correct them and teach them. You may hurt their feelings, but you want them to go to heaven. That's what it's about, isn't it? It causes us to change and give up some things. Maybe here's some practice that I'm having a hard time turning loose of. I'm willing to give that up because I want to go to heaven. Heaven is a compelling force. We see that in 1 John 3 and in verse 3. Here's something else I want to share with you about heaven. And that is heaven is the home of some people. There are places I want to go because of who's going to be there. There are some places I don't want to go because of who's going to be there. Have you ever been invited somewhere and you know the class and the kind of people that's going to be there and you think, I don't think I want to be around them at all. And then you get an invitation to go somewhere else and when someone tells you, here's who's going to be there, here's the kind of people that I want to go. And you do too because of who's going to be there. Heaven is the home of some people. First of all, heaven is the home of God himself. You want to be with God? We just saw in chapter 4, two weeks ago, as we were studying through Revelation, God is on his throne and in control. That vision that John saw, he saw God sitting on his throne. You want to go to heaven and be with God? The angels of heaven, that's an expression used in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Speaking of no one knows the day nor the hour, not even the angels of heaven. There are angels there. Ever wanted to be around angels? You want to see angels? You want all those questions you have about angels answered? You want to go to heaven. Angels are in heaven. But that's not all. Great Bible characters are in heaven. Or will be in heaven. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 just to get a kind of peruse through that chapter. You remember we call this Faith Hall of Fame. Faith Hall of Fame. These are great Bible characters who had faith. They were obedient. They served God. These must be people who are going to be in heaven because they're, they're held as great examples of faith. There's Abel mentioned in verse 4. There's Enoch in verse 5. There's Noah at verse 7. There's Abraham at verse 8. There's Sarah found at verse 11. There's Isaac, verse 20. There's Jacob and Joseph, 20 and 21. There's Moses at verse 22. There's Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and other prophets and on down the line. 
great Bible characters. Say, I'd like to meet Abraham. You want to go to heaven then? Say, I'd like to meet Moses. You want to go to heaven? I want to see Noah. You want to go to heaven? The obedient and only the obedient are going to be there. Let's turn to Revelation 22, if you will. Let's go to the 22nd division of Revelation and verse 14. Blessed are they who do his commandments. They may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. Only the obedient, those that do his commandments. You say, I'm rebelling. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do what he said. Only those who are obedient are going to make it to heaven. But not all of those are going to make it because it's only those who are faithful. Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful unto death, even to the point of death, even if you have to die for the Lord. Those who are faithful to the point of death are those that will have the crown of life. Here's something else we want to talk about. And that is our attitude toward heaven. What is your attitude toward heaven? You have a flippant attitude about it? You have a serious focus? Well, the elders where I used to preach in Louisville used to ask the question frequently and come to the front of the building and ask, are you serious about heaven? And just leave that question hanging. He might be making announcements about our whatever's going on for next week, and then he'd end and say, wait a minute, let me ask this. Are you serious about heaven? Are you serious about heaven? What's your attitude toward heaven? Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Let's read some of these passages here. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, beginning... If we are suffering, then, which is in the context, that comes with being children, and if we're children, we're going to suffer, and then we also become heirs. Let's see what, if that's what this says. Then it tells me something about my attitude. If children, then heirs, verse 17 says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. There's your hope of heaven. For I consider the suffering of the present time not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. Whatever degree of suffering, even death, is nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Now little notice verse 19. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The word that's translated here, earnest expectation, literally means a neck outstretched. You've heard me say that many times in talking about this passage. And it gives the picture of looking with anticipation. If you could imagine standing at a train station and you're waiting for the train to come and you hadn't even seen it yet. But here's some relative that's been gone for a long time and you can't wait to see them. You're standing out near the track with your neck outstretched hoping to get a glimpse of the train when it comes around the curve. That's the description here of looking with anticipation and excitement. That if the Lord comes back today, that's even better than next week. Looking with anticipation. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14 says, For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. It's not that, well, if heaven comes and when life is over, I hope this life lasts a long, long time. And when it's over and I'm done and I'm finished, nothing else is available, then, yeah, I'm willing to go to heaven. No, 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 no. He said, this isn't a continuing city, but I seek one to come. I'm looking for it. 
It was in Philippians 1, in verses 21 and 22 and 23, where Paul said, for me to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better, he said, than this life. So what am I seeing in these passages? I see joyous anticipation. That is, I view heaven with, the, with great anticipation, with joy and with excitement. I'm thinking about it. I'm seeking. That's my aim. That's my goal. And I can't wait to go, is the attitude. What is your attitude toward heaven? What have we seen tonight? Well, we've talked about heaven from a number of standpoints. The types and analogies, what's it compared to? We've talked about some of the descriptions of heaven, what, what it's like. A place where there's no sorrow, no death, no crying. What we'll be doing in heaven, it's compelling for us. Who's going to be there? And what our attitude should be toward heaven itself. Let me ask you this question. Is your name written in heaven? Where is your name written? We get excited when our name's in the newspaper and you say, look here, they mentioned my name right here. Here it is, right here. Oh, that's exciting, isn't it? Maybe there's something where you're honored at school or maybe you're honored at work and they make a plaque and they honor you and you say, there's my name, they honored me. That's, that's, that's made me feel good. Where's your name written? Is it written in heaven? Look at Luke chapter 20 and verse 10 and verse 20. The text says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are made subject to you. But what do I rejoice about? I rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Is your name written in heaven? Have you been obedient to the gospel? Is there a record of your name in heaven? In other words, that's where you're going. You have reservations, it's there. God is waiting for you to come. Is your name written in heaven? If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge the faith that you have in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism? for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?